A Light to the Nations is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Father Fred Shaheen, and welcome to episode 13 of A Light to the Nations. In a previous episode of this podcast, we were asked the question, if we are supposed to hear scripture as functional, then does that mean we are expected to live functionally? Moreover, is it salvific to do so? To review, what is meant by hearing scripture as functional is this— giving weight to all the details in the story, every word, every name, every number, and trying to hear each occurrence of a word in relation to every other occurrence of that same word or expression in the biblical story. And even though we are hearing the text in translation, that weightiness applies to the language in which the original was written, biblical Hebrew. It is through the medium of a written text that the message is presented to us, and we are to submit to it exactly as it is presented, the way the authors intended it to be heard solely for the purpose of instruction. This is what is meant by hearing scripture as functional, as opposed to imagining that the stories are a recounting of historical data for the purpose of conveying information about something that happened or approaching the stories with some philosophical or theological premise that we already have in our minds and looking to have those ideas affirmed. So then, hearing functionally means approaching the Bible with open ears and making some effort to hear and learn the teaching based on what is being presented by the authors in the texts. This is not so easy to do, simply because it requires two things from us that we find extremely challenging. The first is that we set aside the theological and philosophical presumptions we are saddled with. And the second, which can be just as difficult, that we resist the temptation to historicize the text. If we don't set aside both of these premises, we're never going to really hear the text. We will only find support for what we already believe and make the text subject to what we are convinced is true about human history. Instead of asking, what does a particular word mean, we might better ask, how does this word function, or what is its meaning based on how it is used in other parts of the story? So the answer to the first question is a resounding yes. We are to hear scripture as functional in that we should approach it with the understanding that the teaching is expressed in the words themselves as they are presented in the text itself. The second part of the question, is it salvific to do so? Yes, again. If we are to hear and understand the instruction presented in the biblical text, it is for the purpose of doing what it commands. The instruction, or Torah, is an expression of the will of the God who is presented to us in the biblical story as the sole power, the initiator of functional life and judge, He is the sole Melech, the king, the owner or proprietor of everything, the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. Furthermore, his investment in the creation is that all of it serve him by doing his will, 
which is once again expressed in words of commandments. The discussion from episode 11, entitled Functionality Redux, led to a follow-up question, which is the topic of today's episode. What, according to the biblical teaching, is the role of grace? I am happy to welcome back to the show Noel Neff, who is the Sunday School Director at St. George Antiochian Orthodox Church in Cedar Rapids, where I am the pastor. To present the question, I have asked Noel to begin by reading from chapter 2 of Ephesians. Welcome, Noel. Let us begin by hearing scripture. A reading from the Epistle of St. Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. In this passage from Ephesians, we encounter the idea of God's grace. How are we as hearers of scripture supposed to understand this idea of grace in the biblical context? And if I may elaborate on this question, are we as human beings capable of extending this grace to others? Thank you, Noel. So to summarize what you are asking and where the question is coming from, if we are expected to live according to the commandments of God, which are expressed in the biblical teaching, then what role does grace have in all of this? How is it not simply us saving ourselves by doing what is commanded and thus assuring ourselves of the outcome of the action? Well, in the biblical story from the very first, we hear that everything originates from God as an expression of his will. Life itself is breathed into Adam. In chapter 2 of Genesis, we hear that Adam is set up in the garden which God planted and watered for the purpose of Adam's enjoyment. This arrangement came with a caveat, a word of instruction from God. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Although Adam and his wife disregarded the commandment of the Lord God, they did not die, as in they were not immediately obliterated. Rather, we hear in the following chapter of curses upon both the earth and upon the cunning serpent who convinced Adam to disobey. And Adam is ultimately cast out from the garden, 
But the gift of life, which originated from the Lord God, is not rescinded. In fact, Adam becomes the progenitor of sons, first Cain and Abel, and then of Seth, through whom his generations are continued all the way through Noah. In Adam, we hear of disobedience, and in Noah's time, as recounted in chapter 6, the condition is still there, and the situation is even worse. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God settles it to completely wipe out the creation he had made, but decides to spare Noah, his wife, and their three sons and their wives, along with a pair of each of the land animals, creeping things, and flying birds. We hear that it is from these three sons of Noah and their wives that the whole earth is populated after the flood. Significantly, in the biblical story, God continues to go through with his original plan for human beings to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth in spite of their continued stubbornness and recalcitrance. It's a really powerful teaching showing us that in the story, ultimately God alone is completely sovereign and solely in control. And the rest of the story simply reiterates that cycle of gift, command, disobedience, and punishment throughout, over and over and over again. And after the punishment, the exile, comes a second chance. This is the function of grace in Scripture. It originates from God and is given by God to fulfill His purpose and according to His will alone. Once again, that will is expressed in words of command, His law. We encounter the centrality of the law throughout all of Scripture. In the Prophets, the second part of Scripture, the main subject that is dealt with is the failure of God's covenanted people to obey His commandments and their punishment by God that ensues. The third part of Scripture, the Ketubim, opens up the teaching to all others, the nations, while in the fourth part, the writings of the New Testament, that teaching is addressed directly to those others and offered to them as the only way to life, and it is given freely as a grace. Whether the addressees are Jews or non-Jews makes no difference. They cannot manipulate God, they cannot control what he does, and they cannot take as a foregone conclusion any verdict that he alone is able to issue even a negative outcome based on their disregard for his commandments is solely under the aegis of God and not theirs to control. This is beyond impressive. To be clear, this podcast is not intended to be a philosophical or theological treatise. It is not meant to explain ideas or concepts, but rather firstly to examine biblical texts in order to hear and better understand the teaching based on the words. Oftentimes, the hearing and discussion of a scriptural text can lead to more questions, which is the case with today's episode. I insisted that we begin our discussion with a biblical text, here Ephesians, and address the question based not on what we surmise or think, but rather on what we hear. Theological debates we often get tangled up in, that of grace versus works and works versus grace, are, from a biblical perspective, completely invalid. Both are based on the false premise that we can control the outcome. 
If I believe that my work is what earns my salvation, then I'm in charge of it, and ultimately, I don't need God. I'm merely getting the reward due for the effort put in. If, on the other hand, I believe that salvation is a gift that's guaranteed to me, regardless of what I do, and that I am free to do whatever I want to do, including the complete disregard of the commandments of God, then I'm once again in control because I think I can grasp the outcome and I'm not bound by the will of the one who bestowed the gift in the first place. I'm either going to work, 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 work to try to win this, or I'm going to do nothing and expect that I'm going to get the result that's in my favor. But the thing about the biblical teaching, and this runs throughout the scriptures, is that we never get to control the outcome. Grace comes from God. It's a gift, and it's given at a time and a point when we don't expect it, when we can't earn it, we can't achieve it, and we didn't request it. It was simply given to us when we couldn't in any way get it on our own. In Exodus chapter 33, when Moses asks the Lord to show him his glory, the Lord replies, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That's verse 19. The Lord affirms his sovereignty that he does what he wills in the declaration of his name, but also warns Moses in the next verse that no one may see his face and live. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Seeing the face of the Lord, who is the judge, is tantamount to facing divine judgment, something that no one, not even Moses, would be able to withstand or survive, not without an intervention of the highest order, not without, might we say, divine grace. In the text from Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul describes our condition and uses the past tense. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. We hear in verse 2 and again in verses 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So it is God who is the main and really the only agent here. It is he who made us alive. He raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It is worth noting a couple of things. First, our state is mentioned twice for emphasis, dead in trespasses. Think Adam in the garden. Think the whole earth in the time of Noah. Think the sons of Israel when they sinned against the Lord after he had delivered them with his strong arm from bondage under Pharaoh. And even more emphatically stressed is that the change from that seemingly hopeless state is done in conjunction with Christ. Here again, the threefold repetition of this in verses 4 through 7. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, 
and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God is indeed the sole agent in this change of our status, which change is accomplished in and together with his Christ, his anointed one, who in the story is the one who perfectly and completely behaves according to the will of God. Father Paul Tarazi, who is my professor of scripture, explains how the gospel is the fulfillment of scripture, how in the New Testament, Jesus Christ, who is the content of that gospel, and the one in whom and by whom that gospel is carried, fulfills the promise of the Old Testament. Tarazi says, quote, St. Paul, especially in his epistle to the Romans, presents the gospel as bringing the life promised in the scripture of the Torah that was formerly out of reach because the Jews kept disregarding it, thereby preventing them from being a light to those who are in darkness, which in turn prevented the Gentiles from acceding to that life. Both groups gained access to eternal life only because they were granted it freely through Christ Jesus, in whom the light of the gospel prevailed over the darkness, just as life prevailed over death." Unquote. And that's taken from Father Paul's New Testament, Volume 3, the Johannine Writings. If we are to summarize the role of grace, we could say that it's critical because, as is stated twice in this passage from Ephesians, it is through grace that we are saved. The second time it is mentioned, in verse 8, it adds for clarity, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And then in verse 9, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so we should make no mistake, this salvation, this change in status from our being dead in trespasses to alive together in Christ sitting in the heavenly places is the work of God, which he accomplishes for us in and through Jesus Christ, his anointed. In the biblical story, we don't accomplish anything. In verse 10 of Ephesians 2, God takes credit even for us and our purpose, again stressing, now for the fourth time, that this is done with and in Jesus. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If there are good works to note, we are not the originator or the agent of them. Rather, it is God who prepared them for us for the purpose of our walking in them. In other words, being obedient to his commandments, which alone are good. Jesus expresses the sole goodness of God, which in scripture is equated with his law, the expression of his will, in the gospel narratives, when he tells the one who asked him, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. That's Mark chapter 10, 17. The only reference is God and his commandments as written in scripture, which expresses his will. 
That phrasing, dead in trespasses, which appears twice in Ephesians 2, is powerful in that it presents us with two things simultaneously, death and sinfulness, the latter being our stubborn disobedience in refusing to obey the commandments of God, and the former the state which that disobedience has led to, which is death. When we add to that that it is in Christ Jesus and with Christ Jesus that God graciously extends himself to us, makes us alive, as St. Paul puts it, we begin to see a fuller picture of the grace that is inseparable from Christ. In the prologue of the Gospel of John, the evangelist tells us that in him, in the word of God made flesh, we have all received grace upon grace, or grace instead of grace, a new grace to supersede the old grace, that old grace being the gift of life promised by God in keeping his commandments, the Torah. As Father Paul explains in the passage I read a moment ago, that promise is given in Scripture but is only fulfilled in the Gospel, the content of which is Jesus Christ. And it is fulfilled because Jesus Christ himself submits fully and completely to the will of God his Father. We hear him say to the Jews who came to him in John chapter 6, As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. In the New Testament narratives, Jesus behaves according to the will of God, which most often goes against human will, the cross being the most extreme, powerful example of this. We learn from the passages of Jesus in the Gethsemane Garden that going to the cross was not something that he wanted or that was easy for him. In fact, he asks if it is possible that it not happen. However, ultimately, he yields to the will of God, his Father. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. See Mark chapter 14, verse 36, and the parallel texts. And as Paul affirms in Philippians chapter 2, it is in this obedience to the point of death, even the death of the cross, that Christ Jesus is highly exalted by God and given the name that is above every name. And in spite of his perfect obedience to the will of God, what transpires in the story is his total rejection by men. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. As the prologue of the Gospel of John assures us, he was rejected not by some, but by all men. Throughout the New Testament, particularly in the Passion narratives, a great amount of detail is given to discussing the accusations against Jesus in the plot to have him arrested and ultimately crucified. In spite of his acting perfectly in accordance with the will of God, Jesus is roundly rejected and unanimously convicted and sentenced to death. And what's important is that his accusers had to solicit false witness and testimony against him in order to have him convicted. So God's faithful servant, his anointed one, the one sent into the world to fulfill perfectly his will by acting faithfully in accordance to it, is condemned by the world and sentenced to death by a system of justice based on the testimony of men 
who lie. But the biblical story doesn't end there. Jesus is not found in the tomb after his death and burial, but rather he is raised up. In a literary sense, he is made to stand. In spite of his condemnation by men, Jesus is declared righteous by a higher court than the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, the Roman authorities, the governor of Judea, even that of his own followers, and that is by God, his father, the sole Melech king, proprietor of the heavens and the earth. It's a final verdict and the only one that bears weight. Through Jesus' being made to stand, being raised up, we also are freed from both the sinful condition and the condemnation of sin, which is death. In the passage from Ephesians, that we are called dead in trespasses twice emphasizes the hopelessness of our state apart from grace. Both our sinfulness, the trespasses, and the unavoidable consequence of it, death, neither of which can only be changed except by the power and intervention of the scriptural God. That, in a nutshell, is grace. And lastly, one related question. Are we as human beings capable of extending this grace to others? Yes, but not in the same manner that God does, as the gift doesn't originate from us. Listen to the commandment given to Jesus' disciples in Matthew. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus instructs them when praying to ask God their Father for forgiveness as they themselves forgive others. And then he adds, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. As ones who are forgiven, who had been dead and are now raised up, we are obliged to forgive. Being neither righteous ourselves nor judges, we can only forgive as we are commanded to and reserve all judgment to the only judge, God. So we extend grace not as a gift that we are the proprietors of, but rather in obedience to the commandment of God, the sole king and proprietor, and the one who has extended his grace to us. One of the most powerful teachings on this matter is the story of Jacob and Esau meeting in chapter 33 of Genesis. Jacob had stolen his brother's blessing by stealth and had not seen him and was afraid of their meeting. He was fearing for his life and doing everything he could to protect himself from coming face to face with Esau, who in one sense had a right to be angry and to want to take vengeance on Jacob. Jacob even brought presents to try to appease Esau, and when Esau tried to refuse them, Jacob insisted he take them, telling his brother, No, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. That's chapter 33, verse 10. Earlier in verse 4, when Jacob, still in fear of what his brother might do, lifts up his eyes and sees him, we hear, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. 
The brotherly embrace extended to Jacob by his brother who had been wronged by him is described in verse 10 of the text as though Jacob had seen the face of God. It's another very powerful story which shows us that, if nothing else, we can't predict or control or command grace. God is still the sole proprietor of it and the one who distributes it for his purposes according to his will. Sometimes, as shown here, he chooses to extend his grace by showing his gracious face to the recipient through another person, and as in this case, he does it through the last person we might expect, the one whom we perceive as our enemy. The meeting of Jacob and Esau in Genesis chapter 33 comes as an unexpected literary twist to the plot, but we should also understand it as a beautiful and most powerful depiction of what grace is and how it functions in the biblical story. This concludes episode 13 of A Light to the Nations. Thank you, Noel, for your question, and thank you all for listening. I look forward to meeting you next time.